On today's podcast, we have Dr. Costin Antonescu. Costin is my academic twin. We started at the same time. Our offices are across the hall from one another. We eavesdrop on our conversations. Just kidding, Costin. And we actually spend a lot of time supporting each other in many of the things that we've done. And to be quite frank, I've got to ride on the coattails of his success from time to time as well. And it's been a really great personal journey for me to watch him and the level of dedication that he gives to his students all the time. So please lean in and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Costin Antonescu. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today I have another very special guest. It's somebody who started with me at Ryerson. So he's kind of like my brother in this venture of going through life as a faculty member. And on today's pod, we have Dr. Costin Antonescu. Welcome to the pod, Costin. Thank you for having me on, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Costin, tell us a little bit about your role at Ryerson. So officially, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biology here. I don't know what else you want me to <laughs> add to that. You're a biologist, right? And I know sometimes we don't always have to self-identify, but that's just for clarity of the conversation. I'll add to that, the, the, you know, biology is pretty vast. So yes, I'm a biologist, but maybe more to the point, I'm a cell biologist. And, and we'll get back to the, the research stuff in, in just a little bit. But let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about your journey to Ryerson. So where's hometown for you? Where was hometown? That's a very good question. I think I've been fortunate to have several different hometowns over the years. I've been able to live in a, a few different places. So I came to Canada with my family when I was five years old, lived a year in Montreal. Grew up most of my childhood uh, through part of high school in Moncton, New Brunswick, and then came to Ontario to finish high school, last three years of high school in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, before coming to Toronto, where I've spent on and off most of the last 22 years now. So if you had to ask me at this point, hometown is the GTA for sure. So you have a nice, interesting history because your parents are of Romanian descent, but you were born in North Africa. That's is right. that correct? That's right. So, so where were you born? I was born in Constantine, Algeria, where I lived with my parents until I was four years old. That's cool. And so what did your parents do that had you move around all the time? So I guess you could say the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree, but my parents are both academics as well. And they had gone to Algeria as part of a work exchange to teach in the university there, where that's why I was born there. Cool. And I don't suppose you have an Algerian passport, <laughs> or do you? Well, I suppose I can. I am born there. I've never pursued it. I don't claim to have any kind of ties to the country, which, you know, is to my detriment, perhaps. But yeah, I don't, um, I, I don't currently have a passport, but I suppose I could, you know, look into that if I, if I would want to. Anyway, I think that's a real cool, cool transition throughout your upbringing. With all that traveling and moving around, can you remember what you wanted to be as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to be different things at different times, just like everybody else. Everybody cycles through the sort of more childish. I want to be a, you know, astronaut or sort of the generic types of things that younger kids want to do. I think later on, I became more interested in biology. And like many other people in that stream, I think my go-to phrase that I told myself and others sort of through early high school and beyond was that I wanted to be a doctor. And that came to change quite a bit later on when I got a chance to really think about what that would involve. Do you remember what that eureka moment was when you sort of fell in love with biology? What it was that sort of really drew you to that subject? How little we know and how much there's an open frontier that we need to still understand. And I think that really kind of got driven home by my opportunity to work. This was years later when I was in, a, in, in an undergraduate degree during my undergraduate studies and I got a chance to volunteer in a research lab over summer. And it was really kind of getting the understanding of how 
the things that we sort of learn as established fact in textbooks were in some cases approximations that sort of help us understand the fundamentals, but really don't really highlight the, the sort of sheer complexity of the problems that we, the open questions, I should say, that are still remaining to be solved in, in many aspects of biology. That's, that's cool. And so it, that happened during your undergrad. So let's talk about that undergrad experience. You did your undergrad at the University of Toronto. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And so you studied molecular biology or just biology when you got into the program? The name of the program officially was called Molecular Biology and Genetics. Cool. Were you a good student when you were an undergrad? For most of it, uh, or for parts of it, I was not. In fact, I was (laughs) quite, I struggled quite a bit in a lot of classes. I think I had a reasonably okay first year. I think like many students who come into first year university, having done pretty well in high school, there's a bit of a shock that you're there with everybody else who's also done pretty well in high school. And, uh, you know, one has to really kind of relearn how to study and and relearn what what that means. I kind of struggled quite a bit more in second year. And to the point where some of my classes, I was really on the cusp of being able to to pass and obtain the credit. Um, In fact, you you and I have talked about this, but, you know, my... uh, Organic chemistry was one of my classes that was probably my weakest and, and almost not a, not a pass uh, in, in second year. I was going to say that, that that was the same for me as well. <laughs> so It's just funny that that's where I'm teaching. <laughs> um, but okay, so you weren't a great student, but then you, were, you evolved into being a better one. And, I, and you're not alone because everybody we've interviewed on the podcast, all of our peers were horrible students. <laughs> so it, we're, we're in good company. But so you said you had a lab experience that started in second year or was, did you say third year? It was a summer between second and third year. So how did you find that if you weren't a good student or, or if you weren't on paper a good student? What, what was the process there? So this is where I have to acknowledge a little bit of the privilege that I enjoyed. And this was the summer that I, I went back to New Brunswick to live with my parents who were in the process of relocating to Ontario and needed help to sort of close down the, the house and sort of take care of things there. And it was through an opportunity that at the university, uh, University of Moncton there that I was able to volunteer in a lab for three or four months of, the, of that summer. So cool. it, had, it had very little to do with anything that was really earned as a result of my academics. And, and I fully acknowledge that that was a total privilege to have been there and to have enjoyed that but it was a, a life-changing opportunity to be fair and um, i think it's cool and, and good for the to tell everybody that you, you recognize that and that, that privilege that you've had and that's amazing so it brought you here so you had this experience you, you fell in love with biology understood that or you started to realize how little we knew when did you make the move to grad school and and what was that transition like that transition kind of happened sort of progressively during third and, and fourth year i still remained interested in things that were medically relevant in terms of the sorts of research I was interested in in terms of the uh, what I thought about in an academic sense, sort of in my upper years. But it was really further away from clinical practice and more towards understanding fundamental biology. I got an opportunity to work sort of as my grades improved in third and fourth year uh, uh, in a fantastic research lab that eventually became the lab where I did my, my PhD and an opportunity there to really learn about uh, and work with MDs who were also pursuing graduate studies or other uh, research in, in the lab. And really in talking to them, really coming to appreciate the love of science and, and how research plays an important role in, in driving forward advances in medicine that, that I hadn't really appreciated in a practical sense before that and really kind of turned me into much more uh, of a researcher than, than somebody who wanted to pursue clinical practice. And that was that was my next question. Is, so that that's roughly the time that you sort of gave up on that idea of being a doctor and you said, I'm going to go all in and try to make 
groundbreaking discoveries. So you stayed at U of T for your PhD. What uh, piece of advice would you give your, your listeners, students, or otherwise about pursuing a PhD and what that meant to you? It's an overwhelming concept to begin. I think when I remember being an undergrad and thinking that people with PhDs were somehow very different than, than me. They were so knowledgeable and so smart, it seemed, and knew everything and, and were so revered that it was kind of difficult to see myself progressing to that position. But I think it's, it's what I would say is it's the sort of thing where it, it is something that you progress and you grow through. Uh, not just in terms of your knowledge base, but in terms of your your view of yourself and your ability to take on challenges and problems and many things outside of sort of a direct academic sense. And I think that what I would say is that it's it's a journey that is well worth it for those who want to undertake that as part of their their growth uh, as a both as a, as an academic and as um, as a person. I think. Yeah, I would completely agree. I and I think that was a good description at the beginning, it or even at, before. It sounds completely overwhelming. You're like, what? <laughs> as if Absolutely. I could even do that, right? And then you get into it. And it's just one day goes into the next, and it just rolls, and you you are keep working on a, a series of problems that are so related and so interesting that you just in hindsight, time just flew by. I mean, it was, uh, it was a fantastic time. Okay, so what, after you graduated from your PhD, then uh, where'd you go? So I, I was able to get an opportunity to work at the Scripps Research Institute with a researcher who studies a process that I became really interested in towards the end of my degree, of, of, that is clathrin-mediated endocytosis. Um, I'm not going to go into the technical aspects of this. But so that was, a, that was a relocation to a place called La Jolla, just north of San Diego. Uh, where I spent three and a half years as a postdoctoral fellow uh, doing research and pretty much just that from a professional point of view, which was a really fantastic opportunity. And then that roughly coincides with the time we both sort of were doing our postdoc and then we arrived here only four months apart. Do you remember the application of Ryerson and that whole process and what you thought about coming back to Toronto? Yeah, I mean, um, the realities of the you know academic job market were not fantastic back then. I mean, I, I understand it to be much more challenging now even, but it was the it was an application that, that I sent out and I thought that I would be incredibly fortunate to be able to come back to, to Canada and to Toronto to pursue a career as a, uh, as a faculty member. And so I was, I was really excited the application. I, I, I was at the same time, my expectations were, were not too, too high uh, because again, of the challenges and, and the many very qualified people that are applying for these positions. So I was, you know, really excited for the opportunity, but you know, it wasn't until sort of progressing to the interview stage and, and obviously beyond that I really kind of sunk in how tremendous this, this opportunity presented what was and, and has been. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to get your hopes up. <laughs> That's, That's right. thing I remember right. during the whole, whole interview process. And I still remember the first day you were, you arrived on campus just after I did, like I said, and it, it's wonderful to have you as part of a team that has been wonderful. Shit. It's been like almost nine years now, cost, and we're just getting really old. Yeah. Anyway, let's, let's talk about uh, your research. So what, recognizing that we have a pretty diverse audience, how would you describe what the, uh, your research is that you focus in on Ryerson? Okay, so I think the way I would describe this research is that we primarily focus on the fundamental mechanisms that are relevant to cancer cell biology. And what I mean by that is that we primarily focus on uh, fundamental cellular processes, understanding how they work. Uh, and we focus on the ones that are often ways in which cancer cells are able to uh, grow, divide, survive, and otherwise cause all the problems that they do to patients afflicted with the disease, uh, and also ways in which those cancer cells are able to evade 
um, the treatments that we currently have available. So the purpose of all this is so that we can identify better vulnerabilities in, in cancer cells and in their supporting tumors to be able to, to treat patients with disease. So we're very much on the fundamental cell biology side, but with the focus on understanding primarily diseases like cancer and, and also a few projects related to a few uh, other diseases. And I love, like I le I've learned a ton being in this department and I'm still learning a ton. Can you tell us what clathrin is? You sort of mentioned it earlier, just briefly. Just, I mean, I know that that's something that you guys have, have worked with in the past. So go a little bit deeper for the, the listeners that are uh, aware. Sure. So clathrin is a protein that I've sort of started studying during my PhD and, and spent quite a bit of time studying during my postdoc. So what, what it is, is uh, it's a protein. It's a protein that's found in every single cell in the human body and, and conserved across many, many different lineages of evolution and many different types of single-celled and multicellular organisms. And what this protein does is it has an ability to self-assemble. So you can imagine kind of Lego pieces that can self-assemble into a particular shape. And that ability to self-assemble with other similar proteins allows clathrin to essentially help organize the cell, organize membranes and other structures within a cell and allow cells to, to package little bits and pieces of itself to send to uh, other parts of the cell. So it's really kind of a, a very interesting capability that, that this protein has. And, and obviously lots of complexities that I'm not gonna be able to get into uh, today. And, and the, the relevance of all this is that the order and information uh, that is essentially controlled by clathrin inside the cell, the molecular information that's controlled by clathrin inside the cell is fundamental to many aspects of what cancer cells need to do in order to do the bad things that, uh, that they're able to do in, in patients with cancer. So really this is one of those proteins that is at the core of uh, many of the abilities that, the, that, that a cancer cell uh, has that, that we don't want it to be able to continue doing. Perfect. I love it. Now, one of the things I'm very envious of, we, well, we both are envious but of this regard, but we, we always apply ourselves in different ways. So we're just pivoting here a little bit to the, the role of a professor is research. That's a major component in leading that team. Teaching, which the students who listen to this podcast are more aware of because they are in this classroom. And then service. And what always kind of amazes me is how you balance all of those things as well as being a, a father for two. How do, you, how do you do this? How do you find a way to find that, that balance? I don't know that I do. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think one of the things, so um, maybe I'll speak a little bit to this. One of the things that I think the, the training in science that we get is to be very detail-oriented and meticulous and to really be almost a perfectionist with every single task that we do. And one of the things that I've learned that I've had to unlearn in many aspects of what I do in my role as a, as a faculty member and as, as a parent and, and many other aspects of what I do in, in life is that, you know, I have to get comfortable sometimes with things not being, you know, perfect and sort of being good enough and, and understanding what things can be good enough and what things really need attention to, to detail and extra care and, and, uh, and things like that. So I would say that's been sort of the strategy, but it's really, it's an ongoing struggle. One piece of advice I, I remember I was given uh, that has really run true for many, many years is that uh, trying to seek balance in life is very important, but that trying to obtain balance on a daily basis is something that is probably unattainable, but that it, attaining a balance over a lifetime or longer time scales is really what to shoot for. So I think that's been sort of what I've been trying to do. And, and you know, I, at different times, I focus on different things as, as need be. Awesome. That's good advice. 
we have another question later on about advice, but that, that's still good advice. The more advice you give, the better. That's the whole point of the podcast. Okay, awesome. What do you think is uh, the best part of your job? That's a good question. I mean, I have to say there's, you know, I, I love what I do. I love this job. And there's many aspects of things that I really, really enjoy. I think what I really enjoy is, is being around students and postdocs and colleagues who, you know, are engaged in a common goal uh, and to really see people sort of strive as, uh, as, as hard as they can to, to obtain that goal and really kind of, you know, grow individually and collectively in, in the process. I think that has been some of the most rewarding things that I've, that I've done. It's probably the reason why I'm so keen to get involved in sort of group initiatives, as you and I, I think, both have discussed over the years, is, has been, you know, incredibly important. I think it's really, uh, it's really great. So to, to see people essentially be really motivated and passionate about a particular initiative and to be able to contribute to, to working with them to seeing that come to fruition. Yeah, and we've played, both of us have played the role of enabler in, in many ways, not in a bad way, but in a good way to, to help people move forward and, and get them over those hurdles that may or may not be insurmountable. And certainly you deserve uh, kudos for that as well. So what do you like least about your job? What I like least about it, I, I think, you know, I'd have to say that there's certain aspects of uncertainty that are outside of my control that I find very challenging to deal with at times. I think many uh, academics would probably identify research funding as one of the ways in which, or one of the things that is uh, a constant stressor. And I would say that that aspect of the sort of financial and resource acquisition aspect of the job is probably the least fun. But I have to say that I would also say that I enjoy the process of writing research grants. I just don't like the process of worrying about whether those grants are going to be funded. I guess that's what I would say as uh, the, my least favorite part of this position. Yeah, I completely agree. The financial insecurity, not, not for us personally, but for what we're trying to do and the students who we pay is really important. What inspires you the most about your job? So the emails that I love to get, the emails or the phone calls, usually emails that, that you really make my week on or, or my month on any given month is when I hear back from former students, uh, sometimes very recently former students. So, so students who graduated either from my, my lab, from, from graduate studies, from undergraduate studies who are in my class or something that they come, they email me and they sort of give me an update on something that they're, they're working on. It's always wonderful to hear about their successes, either getting a job, getting an award, getting into some sort of professional program that, that they had worked really hard to do. That's really kind of one of my favorite things and, and really picks me up and, and you know, makes me realize why uh, this is so important and really gives me a sense of satisfaction that you know, it's hard to match from, from other things that we do. Yeah, I'd always encourage our student listeners too to, to consider that because, you know, those favorite people that put all their energy into really going out of the way to help enable you or people around you or create a better space, quite often they do it for altruistic reasons. And every once in a while, though they're not looking for this praise, every once in a while, that praise seems to hit your inbox just at the right time when things are like falling apart around you. And I think it doesn't take many messages like that to, to re-inspire you and keep you focused. So that's an amazing one. Awesome. What do you think is the most important transferable skill that every student should have and why? So that's a very difficult question. I think that there's many different transferable skills that people can learn, you know, within a university education at, at several different levels. What I would say is, you know, you'll often hear things like the, the ability to take initiative and to direct one's own learning or to develop expertise on one's own all that kind of stuff. I think that's relevant. I think that's a skill that people learn. But what I would say is the most important skill that students learn in 
the sciences is being able to understand when you have enough expertise to move forward on a project or on a task and being able to know how to fill that knowledge gap that you may have. I think it's, it's not until you've been put forward to, to maybe present something in front of your peers or in front of a class, in front of faculty members, in front of other scientists, um, that you really start thinking about, have I covered all my bases? Have I really thought about all the different angles of this? Uh, and I think that experience is, is really, really valuable and transferable to just about anything. It's really not until you can get that sense of, of where your own sort of blind spots or whether your, your own knowledge gaps may be that, that you can really sort of take on a more, you know, leading role in a creative project that I think is transferable to just about any single discipline, not just restricted to, to science or academia. Yeah, and at the end of the day, we're just doing projects and projects-based learning as, as graduate students or, or researchers. And I agree, that self-awareness is critical, right? Because if you don't know, you need to know that right away so that you can fill those knowledge gaps. It's really important. Yes, that's, that's awesome. And what do you look for? Like, let's say there's a, a person in your class or somebody interested in getting in research. What is it that you're looking for in them when they approach you maybe for that summer opportunity or that first research opportunity? So that's a great question. I think what I would say that I look for the most is someone who has a genuine interest in getting something out of the experience. Uh, and that's going to sound a little uh, generic. Let me sort of follow up on that. And, and what, what I want to say is that often I'm not, I'm not that concerned about somebody's knowledge base or marks to that point. You know, certainly I, I know from my own experience that uh, there's lots of students that, that have not done very well, and especially in their first or second year of their undergrad, and can go on to have very, you know, rewarding and, and you know, in some ways successful careers in science. I'm speaking for myself when I say in some ways. And but, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but but what, what I want to say is it's, it's sort of, I want to say some engagement, but I don't mean that in the sense that somebody has to come in and profess a lifelong desire to, to, to pursue a career in science. That's really not what what I'm really looking forward for in, in somebody who comes in and wants to get something out of the lab experience. It's really somebody who can come in and, and provide some sort of um, uh, commitment for a short period to begin with and, and really indicate that they're, they're genuinely interested in, in pursuing that for, for something that they're hoping to gain out of it, whether it's an experience, whether it's you know, a, a, a skill set to be able to develop and to move forward into where their career is taking them. But it's really those sorts of things that, that, I, that I'm looking for. Yeah, and if people are interested, then they usually are self-motivated too, right? And so you just have to then take that energy and guide it as opposed to drive it, right? So I think that that's, that's a right. really good point. Great. Okay, so we're going to pivot to our rapid-fire questions, which are little, little fun questions. They can be short or long answer, depending on what you, you feel comfortable sharing. And uh, just to get to know you a little bit better, and I actually stole them from uh, a journal bio that or was at least inspired. Maybe stealing is the wrong way word. Okay, so let's start with the first question. So, Kostin, what famous person current or otherwise, would you most like to go for dinner with and why? This is going to sound maybe uh, cliche, but it's certainly something that's come up more recently because of some recent TV shows that have become available, but I would say Michael Jordan. Why? Because uh, he was someone who I really uh, looked up to quite a bit when I, was, when I was younger. And I think sort of the, and I'll use a, a phrase that you and I have talked about quite a bit, it's sort of the attention to developing one's craft and sort of the dedication to that, that is something that 
I think he's done tremendously well and I think is, is it very inspiring to consider. And, and, and you know, I, I would really uh, love to have dinner and sort of get a little bit more insight about what that experience has been, has been like. And I think what he's sacrificed to, to get there, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it would be a very interesting story. And we're seeing parts of that come out. And for those people that are too young to remember Michael when he's on the court, you, the color commentary wasn't as vocal or, or the background noises weren't as loud. You could always hear him shouting. Like he was really like directing traffic, almost like a quarterback. I mean, like he, he will, every minute he wanted to win. It was incredible. What is your favorite food? I think I'll revert back to sort of what is a comfort uh, from days of uh, perhaps spending a few too many hours in pubs in my younger days, uh, which is to say probably a, a club sandwich with, with fries. Oh, yeah. that's a winner. That's kind a winner. of not the healthiest thing and, and maybe a little bit common, but it's, it's always uh, sort of a go-to for me that... Uh, I like it. Yeah. I like it. Okay, what's your favorite beverage? Favorite beverage? Um, I, I'd probably have to go for coffee. I, I have... I can count on one hand the number of days I've gone without starting my days off with coffee in the last 20 years. So, yeah. <laughs> and can you drink coffee in the afternoon any time of day or are you just a coffee in the morning kind of person? No, all day long. Oh, really? Yeah. Man, good for you. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> so I switch to beer or wine or other drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly around noon, but not today. <laughs> all right. So what's, uh, what is your favorite color? Probably I'd say uh, blue. Okay. I think yeah. blue is clearly the winner right now in all of our podcasts. Complete yeah. this sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be. I'd probably say I'd want to be an engineer and I'd want to be involved in building, building big projects, like big cool. physically large projects and, and ambitious ones, large bridges, uh, things like that. Building big stuff. <laughs> and then put, fill brackets, whatever stuff makes All right, That's Something right. in the top top 10 of your bucket list. I'd like to complete an Ironman triathlon. Now you have done triathlons before. Am I making that up or is that a lie? No, it's true. It's, you know, been uh, probably 20 years since I did one. Uh, And I I was quite a bit more athletic than than I have been uh, in in sort of my early 20s. Uh, It's something I've been trying to sort of find a a handle on and fit into my otherwise quite busy life. in part, you know, because it's important for my health, in part because it's, it's a good example for the kids. But I'm finding I, I, I have a hard time sort of, con- you know, including exercise in, in my life as I need to without having some sort of ambitious goal to drive that uh, on an ongoing basis. So that's sort of on, been on my, on my mind for the last few years to, to try and work towards. I'm, I'm a long way off, but it's, uh, if it's a bucket list, I hopefully have some time to get to it. And yeah, I, well, I'm not going to feed your, what my factoid, my colleagues don't know about it, but the hardest part of, a, of that kind of a triathlon is the swim. But you are somebody who used to be a very competitive swimmer. Yeah. So I spent a lot of my, uh, my time up until about when I was 20 or 21 as a competitive swimmer. So both before I came coming to university as a varsity swimmer. Um, and so that's, I would consider that to be a strength. I'm nowhere near as good as I was once upon a time, because I don't spend a lot of time in the pool uh, these days, but I think it's it's one of those skills that's kind of like riding a bike, that given a little bit of time, kind of your body remembers what to do. And I guess that's an advantage for from for me for doing those sorts of longer and ambitious races down the road. I just got to remember, I just got to find a way to uh, 
to you know learn how to ride the bike as well so to speak <laughs> and i think yeah literally and figuratively yeah yes <laughs> actually it is it is one of those things that we maybe from a psychological point of view you know you can do it because you did it right like i guess that's the that's the part i would always be hung up on the swim and i don't i think the run would suck a lot too but <laughs> i feel like the bike the bike is something i could do all right so who is or was your favorite role model that's that's also an interesting question. I think I think I've had quite a few people that I, that I've had as as role models. You could name a couple if you want. You don't have to be limited to one. You know, I think I think well, okay, so I would say that that I've been fortunate to have both my PhD supervisor and my postdoc supervisor be you know, people who who I was fortunate enough to be able to really look up to and and uh, and and learn a lot from and and hopefully emulate in, in some ways. In particular, their attention to um, mentorship of students as an active process that requires not just sort of a passive afterthought, but really a, a, an ongoing commitment, both from the point of view of, of self-development as a, as a mentor and really kind of a, an attention to mentee development and, and their own uh, career path. And I think that that would say that that's been a central theme for me since I've been in a position to mentor others. And hopefully in some ways I've been able to emulate what, what they have um, done and, and done for me and, and for, for many others. Yeah, and a lot of people don't, if you haven't went through this, a good PhD or postdoc experience with great supervisors, you don't appreciate how important that is and how well they seem to have it all together in terms of balance, right. right? Like I just, you're just like, wow, how do you do this job? <laughs> anyway, um, even now I, I, I think about that. <laughs> what would you say is your greatest achievement so far? Oh, wow. Greatest achievement. I think that's also a very tough one. I think, can we come back to that one? Yep. All right. What is your greatest failure? They're likely not the same. <laughs> if that's any help. <laughs> wow. Those are hard questions to be on the spot and just sort of think of just one. Okay. We'll come. Well, let's go. Let's go I, to the next one. This one will can, be easy. And okay. Okay, so next one is going to be, what are you most grateful for? What I'm most grateful for is uh, having been given the opportunities that I've been given to, to do what I love and to be engaged in uh, a career that I find rewarding on a, uh, every single day, that I'm able to uh, work with people that are uh, exceptional and that I get to learn from and, and grow with on a, on a daily basis. Uh, so that's, you know, first and foremost, what I'm, I'm uh, grateful for uh, professionally. I'm really grateful for, you know, my, my family life and my, my kids uh, as well. And, and seeing them uh, be able to, to grow as, and, and throughout, throughout the years and, and, and develop, I think has also been a, a tremendous, tremendous thing I'm very grateful for as well. Yeah. You and Allison have two, two really cute boys. What concerns you the most? What keeps you up at night? What are those things around the world that just really sort of, you're like, ugh. People still sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. What what do you worry about? <laughs> I mean, I think if, if I'm answering this question uh, today, which which I am, I, I worry about how the world is essentially changing at a very dramatic rate. And, you know, many, many aspects of this can be positive, but it, it's a, a period of uncertainty certainly for the next few years that, that will have lasting come, uh, outcomes you know, for, for students and for, for my kids, for those who will be facing the consequences longer than, than you and I will. Um, and so I mean by th that sort of the short-term sort of medical and, and pandemic-related concerns, but also the sort of economic long-term issues that, that the world may be quite different. And I don't know that I'll have the, the skills and the insight to be able to help as I would have been able to otherwise. So that's something that, that kind of keeps me up at night. But at the same time, there, there's opportunities to have the world change in a better way uh, and address some of the inequities, for instance, that have existed. Uh, and, and there's, you know, hopefully an opportunity for, for that to be uh, addressed as well. So 
that, you know, addressing the inequities is not something that keeps me up at night, quite, you know, quite the opposite, but it's just overall the, the, the world being uh, different that I won't be able to, to have the same uh, ability to, to help my kids yeah. and, and maybe even students in, in the way that I would have otherwise. Yep. Costin's big on Twitter. So if you don't follow Costin on Twitter, you should, because a lot of these, I think that's one of a couple of these are, are tough questions for you because you're kind of an open book and you do share your, your, your vocal. And that's really important because a lot of those insights are valuable in a lot of ways to a lot of people. What, uh, what spot in the world do you most like traveling to? That's changed recently for me. So if you, you know, if, if I were to be asked this years ago, um, maybe even as recently as five years ago, I'd probably have to say big cities with historic buildings to look at. And I think it's become quite different. I think now uh, I, I really like national parks, wilderness, being able to take kids uh, and my family into the, into the woods and, and even go camping. And, and, uh, and those are the kind of spots that, that I would, that we kind of look to go to more often than not these days. Yeah, and a, hopefully- Do you have a favorite campsite or camp, camp place? So with that being said, if you're still kind of relatively a novice at camping, uh, okay. <laughs> so I don't want to give the impression that I'm one of those rugged uh, outdoors people that grab a canoe and, and a backpack and, and head off into the woods for weeks at a time, like uh, like yourself, for instance. But I what, what we have done is gone to a, a number of campsites around around Ontario with the kids, especially now uh, we started when, when the youngest was three or four years old. So that presents some limitations to being able to be too adventurous in the woods, but we're hoping to sort of grow as a, as a family to be able to go out and spend more time further away into, into nature and in, in different places. So get the, get the boys loaded up with pack sacks right now. And then that way they'll, they'll learn to carry it all the heavy weight and they'll go more often. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. what my parents did. <laughs> what is your most productive time of day? I've really changed that a lot over the last five years or so. So uh, I, I've, I fancied myself when I was in uh, university and in grad school uh, and even during my postdoc as uh, a night person, uh, somebody who did a lot of their best thinking sort of after the lights went out or after the sun went down, I should say, and sort of between 9 p.m. and 12 p.m. Uh, and that I am absolutely, I would say, of not much use at that time uh, these days. So if I want to have any kind of productivity, uh, I usually am up well before the kids get up, sometimes around 5 a.m., uh, of course, I can't do that every day because sleep is important. Self-care is important. But um, if I really need to get something done, it's usually in the, in the two to three hours uh, in the morning before the kids get up that I have the most, um, the most productivity. Awesome. And what is your favorite hobby? I'd have to say that, that what's really a hobby that isn't tied to any kind of goals and really is just me sitting around and detaching and almost uh, being completely unproductive is um, playing video games. I still do that whenever I can do it. Uh, and, I, and I think it's really kind of relaxing and uh, uh, I don't take it too seriously because otherwise then it become another sort of goal. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's, it's been something, I, you know, it's always been a, a, a great escape, something I've enjoyed going back to when I was, you know, five years old, like, like a lot of kids. Yeah. Awesome. And what uh, back the doy do my colleagues know most about me or at least about me? Sorry. I'm, uh, I'm, I can think of a few, but. I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't like put words in your mouth. I'm drawing a blank, right, Brian. So I appreciate the help. Okay. <laughs> All right. So throw you lifeline. So so a lot of people don't know that before Ryerson, you Rob Batello knew each other. A lot of people and your colleagues network like in the extent in the close friends he did. So how, tell us about that little story. How did you guys meet? Rob and I met during grad school. He was um, a grad school, a grad student in the lab next door to the one I joined as an undergrad that, that I eventually did my graduate studies uh, in. And so I got to know him then. And so we overlapped as grad students for a couple of years before he graduated and went off to, um, to his own postdoc. So yeah, um, I've known Rob for probably 20, 20 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, you've known him for a long time. Yeah, I think that's a yeah. cool story because you guys have come full circle back to where you started. Yeah, that's a cool one. In the interest of time, sure. what piece of, of uh, advice would you give your second year self? Give yourself a break. Nobody has anything figured out at this point. Uh, <laughs> that's really that's a really good idea. That's really good advice. I don't think anyone said that. And I think Sorry, I, I, I think for me, I was I was feeling a lot of pressure to to, to sort of be very um, processive in an academic career or in a career in general. I think we all feel that to some extent is, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing next? What are you building towards? Where are you going to become? And those questions can be a little bit overwhelming, especially when um, there's, there's a lot of very exciting and important career options that students uh, can, can, can have when they finish a degree um, from university and, and certainly from, from science degrees and from degrees in, in um, chemistry and biology. So um, I would say to give, to give yourself a break and take the time to think about what it is that you want to do. And it's okay to not have it figured out. In fact, there's lots of students that are um, more senior graduate students, more senior PhD students that I tell the same thing. It's okay to not have it figured out by now of what you're going to do next professionally. And, and that I think hopefully can, can not just kind of calm some concerns that people may have about themselves, but also really allow students to be as broad as they they can be in considering options because sometimes sometimes you never thought that you would want to go and do x career because you've always sort of been thinking along one line um, and you feel pressure to sort of have it figured out and, and continue in that so it's really kind of look around you and uh and uh take the time to to explore those options yeah and what's right for you completely yeah. agree all right, so let's talk about COVID. So um, obviously it's been a big challenge for a lot of different people and the challenge varies depending on your privilege, obviously. What's been your biggest challenge with COVID so far? I think my challenge has been one that many people that, that have dependents to care after has been, um, and in my case, it's, it's uh, two kids, two younger kids, has been balancing essentially the responsibilities of caring after them about you know, doing their being involved in their homeschooling and also trying to maintain some semblance of, I wouldn't say professional productivity, but to, to fulfill my res my responsibilities for my professional life as well with regards to commitments made. Yeah, and you're not alone. Like all, all the colleagues who have young young kids have said the exact same thing. And I've seen it. I've seen you guys get stressed out. And I wish I could help, but I'm under quarantine. So really, there's not much I can do. <laughs> anyway, so what, what strategies are you, are you using to cope through this? I think it's understanding the fact that that these are not normal times and really not looking at this through the lens of what my expectations would have been of how things should um, should go. I think, you know, I'm trying to do my best, like everybody else in this situation is trying to do their best to meet all their responsibilities. And it's often very challenging. Uh, so what I mean by that is uh, I'll, I'll do my best to try and do some homeschooling with my kids, but I cannot commit to a full pedagogical program in 10 hours a day or eight hours a day of doing uh, an equivalent teaching experience that they would have been experiencing at school. And, and similarly, from, from sort of my professional life, you know, I'm trying to identify the things that are the absolute most critical things that need to get addressed and having to learn to, to you know, come to terms with those that, that there's just no uh, reasonable expectation they can, they can get addressed and get done. And you said two things earlier that I think really resonate with what you just said now, which is give yourself a break. So recognize that, that this, this is now a situation that you're is out of your control completely. So give yourself a break. And then also to, to not normalize it day by day, but say, you know, like we, we don't have weekends anymore either. So at the end of the day, every day is just another day that ends in Y. And so if you spread it out over a longer period of time, 
you can still accomplish many of the need to do things. And I guess, yeah, I guess that's uh, that applying that same logic that you used earlier can really be quite helpful. One, and, one, of, the one of the things, just to add to that, one of the things that I think I'm, I'm using as a strategy to, to try and make this, I mean, there's an aspect of it that is, is, it's important to not assume that it is normal, but also there's an importance of bringing in aspects of normalcy that are important, that is important. I think what I would say is, um, you, you mentioned that there isn't weekends anymore, and I've really tried to make it so that we still do follow a week schedule and do different things on weekends um, insofar as the current situation even allows. But I think that's been uh, a, a effective for us to try and uh, not make it seem like it's a never ending process, but really kind of break it up into, into weeks that still have some sort of semblance of, of normalcy in that regard. Cool. And what is your, has been your silver lining of this pandemic so far? I mean, I think it's great to have been able to spend uh, a lot more time with my kids and my family, which is, you know, it, it's what makes this so hard because it is both uh, a, a, a tremendous pleasure to be able to spend more time with the kids, but it's also at the same time uh, an incredible challenge. And I think it's both a silver lining and a huge obstacle at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and getting always... around that on a daily basis and making sense of that sort of dissonance is, is really, uh, it's, it, that in itself is a challenge as well. Yeah, it's bittersweet in so many ways. Yeah. We get to follow up and I'm, I think I will follow up with you on some of those questions you didn't answer, but we'll let them remain off the pod. I mean, we still get an opportunity to see each other on Fridays, but I hope well, digitally, but hopefully uh, this will end soon and we'll uh, be able to have a beverage, probably not coffee, but maybe another <laughs> beverage. That sounds great. I, I'm looking forward to it. And thank you very much for spending your time with us today. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you all the best with all of this and uh, hope to see you again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and hope to see you soon too. Awesome. Bye for now. Bye.